I wanted to talk about many things tonight, and I was trying to understand what the overarching theme might be, and then I decided it was faith. Which in the Buddhist teaching is a very interesting idea. It's not the way we might normally associate with the word faith, because it doesn't mean a a commodity that we either have or we don't have, and if we don't have enough or we don't have the right kind, we're going to be condemned. But rather, it's it's an unfolding process. It's a process of the heart, and a great deal of its enhancement, its unfolding, comes from the development of greater self-respect and wisdom, those two being very tied together. So the first phase of faith that's talked about in Buddhist teaching um, is called bright faith. And that's the state where it's likened to actually falling in love, where something happens. We encounter a teacher, or we read a poem, or we hear a piece of music, or Uh, We go to some very special place, and suddenly we are changed. We're uplifted. Something opens in us that previously has been closed. And actually, the example is used very often of being in a, a closed, tight, dark room with the door shut, and then something happens so that the door swings open. And we have a sense of possibility, we have a sense of movement that we haven't had before. It reminds me of um, last fall, I was in Cleveland for a conference, and I took the opportunity to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and uh, went to the Bruce Springsteen exhibit, and uh, there was this fabulous letter on the front of the glass case, written by Bruce Springsteen, on the occasion of Bob Dylan's induction into the Hall of Fame. And he said, to paraphrase, something like, um, the first time he had ever heard Bob Dylan's music, and I don't know how old he was in, in this story, but the first time he ever heard Bob Dylan's music, he was riding in a car with his mother. And Bob Dylan came on over the radio And Bruce Springsteen said it was like a giant boot had come down and kicked open the door of his mind. (laughs) And then his mother said, that man can't sing. (laughs) So (laughs) But I resonated so much with that sense, just like, whoa, something has happened. Even sometimes for us, tremendous suffering does that for us. It has the capacity certainly to do the opposite, to shut us in, to close us down. But sometimes that door flings open, not just from joyous occasion, but from really tremendous suffering and pain. And we know there's some possibility, there has to be, in our lives, in this world, that maybe we haven't been in touch with before. So that's bright faith, like falling in love. And that is really just the first phase of faith. While a beautiful stage and and probably essential, it's just the beginning. It's also 
it's not that steady and it's somewhat vulnerable in a couple of different ways. For one thing, it tends to be, say, when we've met a teacher, something like that, it's based on a very external origin. So there's some amount of dependence and and there's some amount of changeability. We might meet one teacher one day and have that feeling of like falling in love. And then we meet another teacher another day and we think, well, forget that other guy, you know. I'm going to follow this one. This is the teaching I need. And it's very much based on the outside rather than being centered in our, centered in our own experience of what's true, what's important. And it also, it has a kind of fragility or vulnerability because it's such an overwhelming feeling as a feeling that it's easy to not want to question or, or point out things that actually we find somewhat problematic or or to doubt in any way, because we don't want to separate ourselves from that glorious, overwhelming feeling. And so that's the place where what is called bright faith will degenerate into what's often called blind faith, because we're afraid to really rock the boat. So that first stage of faith, in a way it's interesting, because that sort of just happens. It happens through conditions, circumstance, one could say karma. And we're very, very lucky. We're lucky when it's from a beautiful source, and we're lucky if it's from a painful source that that's what happens for us, rather than being shut down. And what happens after that really is up to us. The next stage of faith has to do with bringing it home, bringing it within. It's called verified faith, so that the source is not an external being like a teacher, but it is our own experience of the truth. It's grounded in what we've experienced, what we've come to know for ourselves. And this, I think, is one of the most amazing reflections about a sense of human nature that for the Buddha, as an example, to say, basically, people can do this. You know, they can understand for themselves. They don't have to be in some kind of dependent or enslaved condition to the the vision of truth of another, that people have a capacity to be free. And not just a few people, In terms of the capacity, everybody has this capacity. It's really pretty amazing. It reminds me of um, when I was first in India and I was talking to uh, one of my early teachers, this man named Manindra, and he said to me, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. And it was such a a wonderful reflection of that sense of confidence. I think perhaps it was the first time in my life somebody looked at me with that feeling tone of, you can do it. You can solve the problem of your confusion and unhappiness that has brought you here to India to begin with. You can do this. 
the whole notion of verified faith that a more mature, established, developed faith is based on our experience, our own experience, each one of us, is pretty amazing. We come to that experience by, as the Buddha said, put it into practice. He, like we, um, lived in a time, it seemed, where there were all kinds of different philosophies and approaches and paths and uh, spiritual dimensions and all kinds of things going on. And in this very famous sutta, um, these people ask him, well, how do we know? You know, last week this person came through and they proclaimed the truth. And two weeks ago this other person came through and they proclaimed the truth. Like, how do we know what's a, a worthwhile path? And and he said in response, you know, that, that very famous passage, don't believe anybody. You know, don't believe me, don't believe anybody else. The second part of the passage was put it into practice. Put it into practice and see for yourself what's true. See if this path leads to the diminishing of, of greed and hatred and delusion. See if it leads to the development of love and compassion and wisdom. Put it into practice. So it's about us and our, our living sense of the truth. And then the next stage of faith, the last stage of faith that they talk about, happens. It's called abiding faith or <clears throat> unwavering faith. And it's not about a doctrine or, or a dogmatic belief in anything. It's really about having verified something so deeply that we live it that our lives are seamless expressions of that knowing. It's not something like a belief we hold a little bit apart and we defend or, or proclaim, but we live it because we've seen it so clearly. So those last two, if we're lucky enough to have had that door fling open, the last two are our work. That's, that's the effort to not have what we care about, what we believe in, the ideals we hold, be something abstract or distant, to be admired from afar, but to be lived, to be verified through our own experience, and to be embodied as we know this so much that there's nothing self-conscious about it. And if you think of the most loving beings you've met or heard about, been inspired by, when I think of the Dalai Lama, <clears throat> you know, I don't get a sense of that kind of self-consciousness or self-righteousness or um, putting on a, a persona that isn't real. You know, when I, I watch him talking to people, I don't get the sense that he's mentally ticking off the time, you know, thinking, oh my God, (laughs) you know, they are so boring. But I am the Dalai Lama, so I better act like, you know, I care and and I'm compassionate. There's not that that kind of sense of of anything phony or or, um, superimposed on what's actually going on. It's coming from so deep within. You know, who he is is who he is. And that in itself I find very admirable. 
so many of us experience our lives as tremendously fragmented so that we might be one person at work and a completely different person at home and filled with loving kindness for all beings everywhere when we're all alone. But, you know, it doesn't go so well when we're actually in relationship to someone. Or sometimes we're fine when we're with others and we're terrified of being alone. It's not so easy to have a unified life, to really know who we are and to be resting on those threads of what we care about in a whole variety of different situations. And yet, the Dalai Lama and certainly the Buddha are exemplars of that kind of being. When I first saw a Buddha image, I really thought of him as that. The being who was who he was, with wisdom and compassion guiding his life. And so here we are, with that prospect to bring our lives together, to have that sense of wholeness, to know who we are, to be acting from the things we really care about. Not that it'll be perfect, (laughs) because it won't. But to experience more and more that sense of wholeness. That's the practice. So to move from just kind of having a good time in in that sense of, wow, the world's kind of amazing. Mind's, mind's extraordinary. Think about that. <laughs> to living it is, is really our work. But that work doesn't need to be kind of somber and, and have that aura of misfortune, you know, like, oh, no, you know, I have to improve myself in, in this terrible way and... It's really, it's such an amazing thing and and so um, joyous in so many ways. There's a a concept in Buddhist teaching which is very relevant but isn't necessarily um, that well known in a funny way and it's called gladdening the mind. We talk so much about suffering because it does take so much courage and so much honesty to be able to acknowledge suffering and and the universality of suffering. But it's interesting because my understanding of Buddhist teaching is that it's not that suffering itself is redemptive, you know. It's not that suffering is the key to our freedom. It's how we are with the suffering that is the key to our freedom. Because everybody suffers. And not everybody has that door fling open. Or not everybody responds with the development of a, a huge loving heart. And yet some do. The purpose of the practice isn't to suffer. We can do that without the practice. <laughs> The purpose of the practice is to learn to relate not only to suffering but to joy and to neutrality with a a great presence and an open-heartedness and a connectedness that brings us not only closer to our own experience but brings us closer to one another. We've heard in the um, week about the Buddha's description of 
basically how we perceive the world in any given moment. Through sight, through sound, through smell, through taste, through touch, through what's called the mind door, we experience the world in one of six ways in every moment. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and through the mind door, thinking, imagery, something like that. So every moment, one of those six things is going on. And it's said that in every moment, we experience that sight or that sound or that sensation in the body, whatever it is, as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral for a whole variety of of different reasons. But then comes the moment where we are either bound to the habits of the past, we are free, developing a new relationship to that experience. Of course, our condition tendency when the moment is pleasant is to grab it, to try to hold on to it, keep it from ever changing. And when that experience is unpleasant, our condition tendency is is to shove against it, to push it away, to separate from it in aversion, or recoil from it in fear. And when the experience is neutral, again, we have a challenge because our Conditioned tendency is just to go to sleep, to disconnect, to be numb. So to be present, to be connected, to be open-hearted with all of that is actually the quality of mindfulness. So that we're not trying to flatten out our experience. Sometimes people think that if they meditate enough, everything will sort of morph into this gray blob And there won't be any feeling anymore. They won't experience the pleasantness, but then they don't have to experience the unpleasantness. It'll all be kind of neutral. Sometimes people fear that. Sometimes people long for that. But it's not what happens. Because that that perception, that quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality is, is very tied into the moment of contact of the senses. It doesn't flatten out. But what happens next can be a revolution in consciousness. Instead of the grabbing or the pushing away or the going to sleep, we can actually be mindful of it. And that, of course, is our practice. Not to try desperately to have only pleasure, because it won't happen. And not to feel this kind of bitterness at having lost control when there's pain because it will arise anyway. It's not due to our, our deeming it that it comes to be. And we can actually wake up when things are more neutral. And this big, almost like precursor for mindfulness to be able to be present in all those different situations is gladdening the mind. Gladdening the mind, in a way, is almost like the Buddha's prescription for bringing us closer to our own potential. Instead of feeling so mired in self-doubt, or, you know, the ways when we really doubt we're capable of doing something, we really withhold our energy, we're not exactly wholehearted to keep us from that. 
ways to fill our, our minds, our being with openness, with spaciousness, because this is what we want to bring to bear on all of these different experiences, and certainly the painful ones, so that our hearts don't contract. We have that means of, of openness, of spaciousness. It's like the quotation I used in the Metta Course from the Buddha, where he said, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. So that if someone were standing here in the middle of the room throwing paint around in the air, there's nowhere in this space that paint is going to land. It doesn't matter if it's the most well-chosen color or a really garish mistake. The space won't be ruined by it. So develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. That is almost like the essence of gladdening the mind. And so they say that when the Buddha taught, he would always begin a teaching by talking about the power of generosity because it's one of the things that fills us with happiness. When we practice generosity, we're letting go. And we're practicing connection. And as he put it, everybody has something to give. If we don't have a lot materially, it doesn't matter. We can give a tiny little bit materially, or we can smile at somebody. We can give of our energy. We can give of our service, our spirit. Everybody has something to give. And the act of giving points us back to, it's like it reunites us with a certain sense of inner abundance, which gladdens the mind, helps fill us with with this sense of, of openness. So it's in this light, I think, that the Buddha said, if you knew what I did about the power of giving, you wouldn't let a single meal go by without sharing something. So that might mean taking a grain of rice and offering it to an ant. It might mean taking the time with somebody where you're kind of impatient and you know ready to go, just taking the time to smile, you know, to look at them, to give of your energy in that way. Generosity is is very uplifting. And my friends and I here often uh, talk about, there have been times when I think each one of us has undertaken a, a sort of resolve where if a very strong urge to give something arises in one's mind, and a reasonable one, not like I'm going to give away everything, you know, and uh, harm my family or something like that, but something within reason. <gasps> You know, so if that kind of urge arises in, in one's mind, to actually follow through on it, even though the next 50 thoughts are, oh no, you know, what if I need it next year? I haven't worn this sweater in 20 years, but, you know, I might need it next year. Because it's quite interesting to watch sort of the openness of the intention to give and then the retraction of the fear and then the openness as you think again, oh, 
I'd like to give that, and then the retraction of the fear. It's quite interesting to watch that whole play in one's mind and to see what happens when we actually give. Because it's, it's an act of great delight. And it does reunite us with the, the conviction we have something to give. It's not easy to believe. Even in the metta, you know, when I've talked about here how many times people have said to me, well, you know, I've chosen the Dalai Lama as my benefactor. And then I think, well, that's stupid. What does he need me for? You know, like he doesn't need my prayer, so to speak, or my well-wishing. And first of all, how do we know that? And second of all, isn't that an interesting assumption? That what we have to offer is so negligible, it's so unimportant, it's so insignificant that it should be discounted. But when we can go through that kind of doubt and generate the metta for the Dalai Lama, it brings us back to that sense of having something to contribute. When we make a material offering of whatever size, it's born out of that sense that it counts. And I think I certainly, and and many of us, have had the experience of being um, with different kinds of people at different times, maybe different cultures, where sometimes the people who have the least materially seem to take the most delight in giving, in sharing. You know, like in Burma, for example, where we practiced um, in monasteries where we weren't charged at all. Like we weren't charged for room and board because the people were so profoundly respectful of the fact that we had come to meditate, everybody, um, not just the Westerners, that every single meal was an offering from somebody, you know, and very, very poor people, but so happy for the chance to give and to share. And then, you know, I'd, I'd be there and then come back here. And the contrast was sometimes just so startling where people who had so much more didn't seem to have the feeling they had enough you know, to share in that way. And so it's, very, it's really an inner process. It's an inner practice. And if we can undertake it as a practice to whatever degree, you know, in either materially or non-materially, it will open and gladden our minds. I just had this memory of one of my uh, Tibetan teachers once saying, if it's really, really, really hard for you to give, the way you should practice is you should put something in one hand, like a rubber ball or something, and practice moving it to the other hand. (laughs) See what that feels like to let go. Then take it from that new hand and bring it back (laughs) to that other hand. Just practice like that. So the extension of that, past generosity, um, is morality. It's living one's life in a way that is really based on love and compassion for ourselves as well as for others. And it's another kind of generosity. The Buddha called it the gift of fearlessness. It's fearlessness for ourselves because we all know what it's like to live in some way that's out of harmony. It's not so easy. 
we tell a lie and then we have to tell another lie to bolster that first lie and then we get confused and then we have to really sit and think, you know, with great determination to keep our lies straight and then it's, you know, it's very complex, very unwieldy. And it's very common, you know, as, as we've talked about in practice, to kind of feel the pain of that for it to be revealed as unpleasant as it actually is, which is good to know. It's also a gift of fearlessness to others because it's almost as though, just like we have metta, you know, up above the doorway here to say this is what we're about, it's the way we go through the world so that people know we won't be a source of harm to them so that there actually can be trust. To have a sense of, I think of it sometimes as having one's own life being kind of an art form. You know, to, to take the time and to have the willingness to work with, with all of that in a way that we don't usually, you know, we don't usually think of taking a risk in that direction, like being more truthful or more compassionate, more careful, considerate. We usually think about taking a risk in the opposite direction. But what would it be like just to, you know, without being puritanical and and kind of uh, repressed, to look at the precepts, to undertake them in that spirit, what's it like? You know, many of you have heard me tell the story about the time the precepts in daily life, not in retreat. You know, are um, undertaking the precept to refrain from killing, refrain from stealing, um, not to practice sexual misconduct, which means not to use our sexual energy in a way that's harmful <clears throat> to ourselves or to others. Um, to practice right speech, which means to say that which is true and that which is useful. Um, And then not to take intoxicants that cloud the mind or cause heedlessness. And all of them are what are called training precepts, which means that they're ways of seeing more clearly things about ourselves, ways of waking up more and were we to break them in some way, then we resolve to take them again. You know, it's not, it's not a question of, of punishing oneself or, or hating oneself. And so being about awakening, that means it often involves a kind of struggle. It's not so clear sometimes. But we have the the precept as a kind of guideline. And so the story I was going to tell is about that last precept about intoxicants, not taking intoxicants that cloud the mind or cause heedlessness. And there's a lot of debate about just how heedless is heedless and um, (laughs) things like that. And, you know, is a glass of wine at dinner breaking a precept or is it, you know moderation that's the key or you know what is it that all about and and different people 
will have very different interpretations of that. And of course, the interpretation that matters is the one that one comes to oneself. But I was in Burma once, Joseph and I were in Burma, uh, practicing with Saira Upandita, and somebody asked him the question, you know, something like, isn't that last precept really about moderation? You know, like, couldn't I have a beer or something like that? And I knew it was trouble. Like, as soon as I thought, you are not going to be happy with that answer. And uh, Saira Upandita, not surprisingly, um, said, oh, it was surprising in, in the, the actual articulation of it, not the, the essence. He said, there is one way that you can have a drink and it won't be breaking the precept. He said, that is, if somebody ties you up and pours it down your throat, and you don't enjoy it. (laughs) He said, then it's not breaking the precept. And and I sat there and I thought, I knew you'd be sorry you asked. (laughs) And then I thought, that's really kind of extreme, isn't it? And then I thought, wouldn't it be interesting for a period of time just to not take any alcohol in the way that he was suggesting. And, you know, it wasn't like I had um, been drinking a lot beforehand either, but I thought, wouldn't that be interesting? You know, instead of just sort of poo-pooing what he said and said, oh, that's kind of extreme, think, why not try it? Why not take a risk in that direction just to see? You know, no moralizing, no judging of others, no... Uh, kind of self-righteousness, but to say, what will it be like? Wouldn't it be interesting just to check it out? And so I think, how lucky are we, you know, that we can step away from convention and from what's familiar and be willing to experiment in these directions too. It's not that common. And we can certainly see that in the world. So we gladden the mind by living in a way that's not so fraught with all that confusion and guilt and hiding things and um, all of that to really move our lives in a way that is creative for us and and opening toward greater and greater non-harming. We gladden the mind by the practice of loving-kindness, either the active, literal practice or, or just the understanding of its importance and bringing it to life in, in whatever way we can. To realize that the motivation with which we practice is also very important. We can practice meditation out of great love and regard for ourselves and our own potential, our own unique potential and our universal potential for awakening so that there's some joy, even in the rough times. There's a sense of remembering our aspiration, having some confidence in ourselves. The first time I did loving-kindness intensively in Burma, uh, that first day I was there, Saira Upandita, who, as you can tell, you know, from all of these stories, is very like, fierce and demanding and 
uh, called me into his room and he said to me, do you think you'll do well at this practice? And my heart sank. I thought, oh no, he's looking for conceit. You know, this is a test. So I said, I don't know. (laughs) I'm not really sure. (gasps) Maybe I will, but maybe I won't, you know. And he just kind of shook his head, you know, and he said, everything you do, you should do with great confidence. You know, you should know, you should do it knowing you can succeed at it. Because that's that vision of human nature. You know, it's not because I am so special that I can succeed at it, but because, at least according to the Buddha's worldview, we all can. That that potential is within us, innate, undestroyed, and all of us have a capacity to bring it to life, to make it real. So we need that confidence, we need that kind of joy, because there are always ups and downs. So we need the the power of loving kindness for that, woven right into our motivation, and we need loving kindness for others, to remember that whatever practice we do is never just for ourselves alone. Always it's for the sake of ourselves and others, ultimately for all beings. That that, that is really our commitment. That's really our dedication. And if we remember that, it will create that sense and reinforce and sustain that sense of spaciousness and openness and joy within which we can face really anything that, that comes our way. The operative word in all of that is practice. Generosity is a practice, morality is a practice, loving kindness is a practice, and mindfulness is a practice. The most important thing of all, I think, is is taking these qualities that we might admire in others or appreciate in the abstract and really resolving to make them real, which means putting it into practice to actually do it. Almost every meditation teacher will suggest that people try to practice every day. And it's not that everything can't be a practice. Hopefully everything is a practice. But for most of us, uh, a genuinely dedicated period of time every day or close to every day is what allows us to take these ideals and make them real. And we had a, a, an acquaintance in India who wasn't one of my teachers, but she was a teacher. And... Uh, she'd had a, a pretty difficult life situation, like uh, many women in that culture at that time. She'd been put into an arranged marriage and um, when she was maybe 12 or something like that. And, and the family, um, her husband's family, were uh, very dominating, and they wouldn't let her. She was very interested in meditation, and, and they wouldn't let her go off and do retreats or things like that. Um, but she practiced and grew accomplished and became a teacher. And so people would say to her, how'd you do that? You know, you didn't get the chance to go off and 
and really immerse yourself in intensive practice? And how did you grow in, in the practice to that degree of accomplishment that you could teach? And she would say things like, I was very mindful when I stirred the rice. But the difference between her and us is that she was very mindful when she stirred the rice. And most of us think about it or think, yeah, I can be mindful stirring the rice. I won't bother to sit. You know, something like that, that she was. It wasn't just a thought and it wasn't just something uh, she thought was great. It was true. The motivation she had was so strong that she put her heart there. She made that time of stirring the rice or whatever she was doing genuinely a time of meditation. So for most of us, and certainly for me in my own experience, what has been important to have qualities like mindfulness seep throughout my day has been a period of dedication to it, to take some time every day and make it real. And I think that not only is this humbling, but it's, it's very, very important. In fact, it's the essential point. When the Buddha said, put it into practice, he was saying something about each one of us at that time. You know, I know it's so much easier. Like when I went to India the first time, I had been a student, a college student at the State University of New York at Buffalo, and I'd taken a course in um, Buddhism and Asian philosophy. And even though I went, certainly, to India propelled by a, a tremendous yearning to understand myself and to be happier than I was, I also had a certain feeling like, oh, I know that stuff. You know, I did term papers and Buddhism and, you know, the say what I was talking about earlier, which is uh, a very simplified version of the wheel of dependent origination. You know, we know the world in one of six ways in each moment. We experience that as pleasant, painful, or neutral. We can respond with grasping, aversion, and delusion, or we can be mindful. I thought, yeah, I wrote a paper on that, you know. <laughs> so... I had that kind of thinking. And then, you know, I got to India, and it took me about three months to actually find a situation um, that suited me, you know, that wasn't either very philosophical or, or whatever, but was very um, direct about, about the practical tools. So I finally found that situation, which was an intensive 10-day retreat, And within probably 10 minutes of sitting down in that retreat, I realized I didn't know anything. When it was my knee pain, then all those theories about, oh, the Buddha said this about painful experience in the body and, you know, meeting it with with mindfulness, it was gone. You know, when it's our knee pain, when it's our heartache, when it's our challenge. And so even, I think we live in a society where It's so easy to feel that we know it because we've read about it or everything is sort of abstracted and distanced for us here. And, um, you know, there's, there's a certain sense of being disconnected from our own lives that 
also is expressing itself through that sense of, well, if I can write a book about it, then I know it. But it's different to actually sit down and to be looking at our experience directly, to be experiencing the pleasure and the pain and the neutrality, to feel the possibility and actualize the possibility of being mindful, being connected, being open in all of those situations, rather than restricted by the force of habit. That's what's important. And so we say, sit every day. My first teacher told us to sit for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, which actually we could kind of do in India. You know, there wasn't a lot else we were doing. But it's much harder here. People have lives of great complexity and responsibility, and it's not so easy. So I have really come to believe, and I say this sincerely, not because, you know, it's like a remedial path, but um, I think the most important thing, more than the duration, is like the everydayness of it. Because when we sit down, and it could be walking too, but it's that formal dedication, so we'll just say sitting. When we sit down, we're saying something right in that moment. In fact, one of my teachers said the most important moment of your meditation practice is the moment you sit down to do it. Because in that moment, we're saying something about our faith, our confidence in ourselves, our belief in change, our willingness to try to take something abstract and make it real. That's the moment. What follows from there be different all the time. There are times in our lives that are incredibly chaotic. And so the sitting is very restless and tumultuous. There are times that are much more serene, and the sitting is serene. There are times when we're really hurting, and there's that sense of great solace in in the sitting. There are times that things are, are kind of easy, and we have a sense of interest and exploration in the sitting. Times when we're just bored when we sit. It's always changing, just like it's always changing here. And that's why you know, I've said to several of you, I think the best kind of retreat you can have here is one where things are constantly changing. You go up and you go down, and you go up and you go down. Because it's perfect practice for the rest of our lives, where things go up and down and up and down. And that's displayed every morning when we sit down. There's no one way it's supposed to feel like. It's true here. It's true there. Because in any case, we are developing the strengths of mindfulness and loving kindness and compassion. That's the whole point. Not what's happening, but how we are changing in relationship to what's happening. How we are transforming with what's happening. And so there's no sense of, well, you know, I couldn't sit because there was too much happening, or I was too sleepy, or whatever. You may not sit, but it's not that you couldn't. The great word in both practices of mindfulness and loving kindness is 
inclusion. In mindfulness practice, we include more and more and more experiences of all kinds in that field of awareness. And in loving kindness, of course, we include more and more aspects of ourselves and more and more beings in that field of loving kindness. It's all about inclusion. So there's no time, there's no experience that is just wrong. You know, that's like beyond the pale, that's over the line, that means, oh, couldn't be mindful or couldn't have loving kindness. We may not. But that is, in fact, the practice, is to open in that way. So sit every day, if you possibly can. And if you don't even have 20 minutes, but you have five, I think it's still worth doing, because something happens the moment we sit down to do it. And if you have you know, 45 minutes or an hour, that's terrific. Most people find that even in the calmest of times in their life, the beginning part of their sitting at home will be just a flood of thinking. I forgot to call so-and-so, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that, and oh no, there's my refrigerator again, that couldn't be right, you know, maybe I should get a refrigerator repair person, I don't know if that sound, and you know, it's just like, just this barrage of thinking, and you know, say that takes five or ten minutes to to discharge, and you only sit those five or ten minutes, that's still good. That's like a big de-stressing. But you don't have time to go beyond that. So, you know, that's why we would say like half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, if you can, because you will have time to go beyond that. And to really utilize all of the tools and all of the skills that that you have learned to have a quite radically different approach to your experience. If we do that, if there's some part of the day where we're just making it real, putting it into practice, then that we find that these values in their embodied form come throughout the day, which is the whole point. We're in a contentious situation. We're in a frightening situation. We're in a situation of great delight where our habitual tendency might be to hold back. All of these kinds of times, those tools are there for us more and more. We remember. It's not that mindfulness is like this very removed, impossible attainment. We've all experienced it many, many, many times. We just don't often remember it in a whole variety of different situations. So our practice becomes one of remembering it more and more and more and more, and it will be there for us. So the, the kind of dedicated period of practice translates into a very different way of life. We're all about remembering. So I'm going to end with this story because somebody asked me to tell it. Some of you have heard it, no doubt. About this time um, that I was here um, teaching this retreat, and I knew that I was going to be spending some time 
in the following spring in New York City, so I needed an apartment. So I just kind of went online and looked up these different realtors, and I ended up uh, calling this realtor in February saying, you know, I needed an apartment in New York. So this woman um, and I were having a conversation, and she said to me, you know, she has a very, very, very broad New York accent, which I feel free to imitate sometimes when I tell the story, since my own is getting much broader because I'm spending more time in New York. I used to say, people used to ask me if I was from Canada, and no one ever asks me that anymore. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I told her these were my, the dates I needed the apartment, and this was the location I was interested in. And then she said to me, so... <laughs> What do you do for a living? And my heart sank because I thought, oh, no. You know, she's going to think I'm a complete flake. She's going to think I can't pay the rent. Um, So I said, well, to tell you the truth, I teach meditation. And she said, oh, that's so interesting. She said, what do you do? So I said, well, you know, we start with this awareness of the breath, because that's a way of centering, kind of calming down. And then um, we use that as a base for just looking at everything that happens, all of our experience. And, and she said, oh, that's so interesting. And we hung up, and then I didn't hear from her again for a couple of weeks. And um, this course was ending, and I knew I was going into New York on the day the course ended. And I only had this little window of opportunity to actually look at any apartments that I would then rent for the spring. And so I got kind of anxious, and I I called her back. And and I said, well, you know, I haven't heard from you, and I'm coming into the city really soon, and I have to find an apartment because I have all these teaching commitments in the city in the spring. And, you know, this is the only week I'm going to be in the city before the spring, and I have to look at things this week, and you haven't called me. And and she said to me, Sharon, are you breathing? So she became my guru, and she found me an apartment. <laughs> People often ask that, did she get you an apartment? She did. But it's not bad to be reminded either when we don't remember on our own. And the reminders can be everywhere. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.